Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Sports Radio, 92.7 WFNZ, emanating live from the Planet Kia Studios, the best place on the planet to buy a car. Visit them at East Independence Boulevard or online at planetkianc.com. Luke DeCock, Raleigh News and Observer, longtime sports columnist, coming up in about 19 minutes. I don't think he's got a conflict. Carla Gebhardt did, and that's okay. We were hoping to go down to Daytona twice in this show, but we'll have to settle for once. Doug Rice, legendary voice of NASCAR on PRN, coming up in 58 minutes. We'll talk about what's happening Sunday at Daytona. He's going to be on part of the call on MRN. Uh, we'll talk about his victory lap in 2024, a la Mike Krzyzewski and Kobe Bryant. Uh, Doug Rice in about 58 minutes. <laughs> you got a kick out of that, didn't you? No, no, that, and I just saw Eric Jones, NASCAR driver of the number 43. Uh, he's apparently a big Creed fan. Uh, Creed is down in Daytona right now. What? Oh, because they're, whose car are they on? Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson? Johnson. That's which, right. Which, by the way, he has to make the show tonight. He didn't get himself in on the automatic qualifier, so... Mm. That's another reason to watch tonight's duels because Jimmy Johnson might not make the show. Is Scott Stapp going to be on the hood of his car? Have you seen the paint job? No, yet? no, it's uh, it's just a small sponsorship right next to the number. Oh, like I was hoping the whole hood would be like a fat head of Scott Stapp. Can you ima- can you imagine looking in your rearview mirror? You're leading the race, and here comes Jimmy Johnson charging up the back stretch with with an angry Scott Stapp on the hood of his car. With arms wide open. With arms wide open. Well, we got to remember, uh, it, it costs a lot to sponsor these things. Yeah, but he should have crowdfunded that. Like, yeah. that's, first of all, you're going to win the race with angry, demented Scott Stapp on the hood of your car. And once you win the first one, Scott Stapp's there to stay. Let's be real. So I feel like it's a missed opportunity for arguably the greatest driver of all time. I know the Dale stands will get me for that. Jeff but. Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> the Rainbow Warrior stands, too. All right, uh, Luke DeCock in 17 minutes, but uh, right now it's the best audio in sports. What did you say? You what? What did you say? Hold up. Wait a minute. Something ain't right. What did I hear you say? What I mean by that is... Somebody said, do race cars have rearview mirrors? Technically, they're new mirrors now, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's so. Technically, yeah. yeah. Not, like the, not like the one in your Honda Pilot, no, no. but, you know. Yes. It's a rear view camera, essentially. They, they have it on the dashboard. Oh, speaking of that, when you and I played the game the other day, what does Bill Belichick drive? Somebody was like, you got to make this a permanent segment on the show where we guess what athletes and famous people drive. And I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Then for some reason, Jim Beheim popped in my head. And I was like, what does Jim Beheim drive? And I was like, it's got to be the most unexpected thing ever, like a Honda Pilot, right? Plenty of cargo space, decent fuel efficiency, great safety standards. I don't know. I was thinking Jim Beheim and Honda Pilots. what I was thinking. Anyway, what you got over there? I thought you were going a different avenue there. Uh, no, what do you think I was going? Let's just say I, I know what type of avenue you're going down because I've heard a lot of those jokes as a Tony Stewart fan. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Let's keep on going then. All right. Well, we start out with Cam Newton, which we mentioned this earlier, but we want to get into the full conversation with. Yesterday, it came out on his podcast, 4th and 1. He discussed not diving on the football during Super Bowl 50, and he went in depth right here. It ain't no excuse for me not jumping on the fumble. Okay. I should have jumped. Okay. So I'm not even going to give you something because that will be the take that somebody so, yeah. I should have jumped on the fumble. Okay. Straight up. There's no – the competitor in me, if that happens again, duh. You know what I'm saying? And the this is the Super Bowl. Facts. 
all effort goes to like yo Super Bowl energy that wasn't Super Bowl energy and I think that is what hurts the most it's like yo you don't get an opportunity to go back it's not promised for you to go back mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying because the next year that's when the shoulder injury happened and oh, the year yeah. following that that's when the foot injury happened so you don't necessarily know when it's going to be your time when it's going to be your time like that was your time to seize the moment carpe diem the words that I live by mm-hmm. and, I, and I didn't so you know looking back at it you will never have an opportunity again so I found it like a lot of people found it interesting that he didn't attribute that to anything. Like he, he didn't give you a why, right? All he said was, "I didn't jump on the fumble. I should have. It's going to stick with me." But there was no why, and I don't know that there is a why. I bring that up to say I'm not sure that there is a concrete why. I've always looked at that play, and I, is it? I think it's Derek Wolf that's coming in from the left side of the frame, right? If I'm not mistaken. And when I watched that play over the years, what I what I always thought I saw was Cam's head tying up his feet. Right? That happens sometimes. And that, it happens to athletes, happens to us bending over to pick something. Like, your head ties up your feet sometimes. Like, that's what I, how I always interpreted that. A guy who played after a car crash, a guy who deliberately got into multiple car crashes and goal line situations, is like, he's not afraid of contact. That's not it. So I've always viewed that play and thought, eh, that's it seems like a classic case of a guy's head tying up his feet. It happens sometimes. That's why they say don't think. Right. It, right. So am I supposed to interpret that differently now, or does that still line up? I, I think, again, I told you, I was up early this morning, like 6.30, 7 o'clock with the kids. I heard that in my ear. I couldn't believe it. Like, stop me in my tracks. I think it's a little bit multifaceted. In one case, it's one of those situations where people are like, well, he survived, you know, survived that car crash and played a week and a half later. It's like... Well, you got to remember, he was kind of being thrown off his rhythm. So I could think he probably fought while, you know, that was all going on within a split second. I also think, too, a big part of this is he realizes he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. He screwed both ways to Sunday. If he says, if he defends his choice, people are like, oh, now you defended it. You're just lazy and all that stuff. And if he doesn't defend it, it's like, see, he's a loser. He just didn't dive on the fumble. Now we're all vindicated. I think he kind of realizes the tough pickle he's in. So it's like, I can't really defend it because it happened. I, I don't know if it's supposed to change anything about the way that, that people view that play. Does it, cha- does it change anything for you, the fan, you, the listener, when Cam says, I should have jumped on the fumble? No. Okay. No, because, I mean, you can make cases for both, especially if you look at the All-22 film. It shows a different type of situation, too, playing out. Plus, the Broncos should have been penalized on that play for uh, Von Miller aiding the ball to Broncos near the end zone. That actually, they actually gained an extra 5 to 10 yards on that but no one seems to mention that. All right, what else you got? All right, another guy who was on that 2015 uh, Super Bowl year 14 for the Carolina Panthers was J.J. Jansen, and he joined the Mac and Bone Show earlier today, and he was talking about some of the controversy from Super Bowl 58, specifically Kyle Shanahan electing to take the ball first at the start of overtime, and he explained to the guys that actually wasn't a mistake Kyle Shanahan made. Shanahan's getting all this... Uh vitriol for not taking the ball there there isn't a right or wrong decision it's you know kind of like he said like hey i wanted to take the ball and, and largely to give my defense a little bit of a rest but he actually was made the right decision if you look at all of the modeling now it's the first time we've ever done it so we have no data and patrick mahomes is one of one so we don't have any real data on that but in general this is a non-event like we're worrying about the wrong things if i can move you from that decision 
to about 10 plays later, not going for it yes. on fourth and fourth and nine. Yes. That's the decision that should be vilified. When he, when he chose to kick it, he gave up about 12% win percentage by kicking versus going. Uh, yeah, I mean, JJ's a smart guy. And I, I hear him referencing the odds right there. I also think for myself, you've seen the video now of Patrick Mahomes' reaction to hearing Fred Warner saying, <laughs> we'll take the ball. You've seen the reaction. He was trying to keep his poker face It's all he can do to contain in. himself. So, I mean, I, I hear what JJ's saying from an analytical mathematical predictive standpoint you know it's new we haven't now he also said hey patrick mahomes is one of one literally like we t- that's the other thing he's one of one uh we've seen reports that and we'll never know this we've seen reports that andy reed would have gone for two i would have done the same i probably would have too yeah. um let it all hang out there it doesn't matter i mean there's so much coming out of this game I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride with Patrick's re- response. I'm going to ride with Patrick Mahomes' reaction. When he heard Fred Warner claim the ball for San Francisco, his eyes got big around his dinner plates. He's like, yeah, we, we, want that, we want that in. No take backs. Bye. No, he was not expecting. He was like, yeah, we'll, we'll, take, wait, oh, we'll take that in. We'll take that in. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. No, no, no take backs. Bye. Good luck. And he's out of here. <laughs> what else you got? All right. So this audio came uh, late last week. So this is before Wake Forest played Duke. But there's been a perception around the ACC not being that good this year. Well, Steve Forbes on SiriusXM disputed that, saying it's a narrative coming from national networks, not the actual truth. I think what has happened is I don't think the league has changed at all. I think it's just how we're viewed. And, for instance, when the RPI was in play, the last four years of the RPI, we had something like, uh, I don't remember. Oh, we had 31 bids in the last four years of the RPI. And we had 59 wins, 67 winning percentage far and away more than anybody in college basketball, okay? Big 12 had 27. Big 10 had 25. Remember that number. Now we go to the net. Now we're down to 24 bids. Four years later, 31. You know, we had all these bids. Now we're down to 24. Big 12 about the same, but the Big 10's up to 36. But they're last in winning percentage in the tournament, and we're still number one. To me, it's just the lens that you look at the metric. I think the metric is flawed. I don't, I'm not. I think it's terrible. Um, it's not a good metric, but it's one we have to live with. And I think they just, I think when you create a narrative, all you do is look at numbers and you don't watch basketball. I mean, there's no way possible these guys have these narratives to watch possibly every game in every league to know whose league is better. So I think if you want to be, if you want to predict, you know, those kind of things and have a narrative and you're just going to do metrics and say that and understand you don't really know anything about basketball. I love it, Steve. Go after the nerds. I love Steve Nerds, Forbes. listen here, nerds. I will protect you and I will defend you in many instances, many arenas of life, but not here. Not here. You're, you're not going to nerd the Deacons out of the tournament, or at least you shouldn't be allowed to. It, it, here's the thing. He's so right about what he said, and it really bothers me. I heard a college basketball reporter on this station a few weeks back, several weeks back, who I won't name. But this reporter was uh, making the case when it came to the net and the ACC's perception that, well, it's just very simple for me. It's the numbers. All I have to do is look at the numbers. I don't have to worry about, you know, the eye test or this or that. Now that we have these metrics, we can just plug everything in. And this is the gospel truth. No, it's not. It's not. And when you see things repeatedly, 
like I, I know we beat we've been beating up on Joe Lenardi quite a bit on this station lately on this show in particular. But when you open up the latest iteration of your bracketology using the ACC's average number of top line seeds in the last four years as, as your sample size to make the case that the ACC is a part of a concerning trend and it's this and it's that. But you conveniently omit the fact that in the past three tournaments where the ACC had no one seeds. And in that same span, the conference had six Sweet 16 appearances, tied for second most among conferences, four Elite Eight appearances, tied for first among conferences, three Final Four appearances, first among conferences, um, an average of 6.2 wins over the Ken Palm expectation, first, 6.3 wins over the seed expectation, first, 23 total wins for the conference in that tournament, which is tied for second, and did so with just the fourth most bids of any conference, 17. Um, I'm sorry, but your narratives ring hollow to me. There is a coordinated effort. I, I'll, I'll proudly wear the tinfoil hat on this, and you can mock me as being college basketball's conspiracy theorist. I don't care. There is an effort to attack the ACC and its foundation as a basketball conference. It is hilarious to me that on the football side, the SEC continues to get the benefit of the doubt in the same conversation on the football side, but the ACC suddenly sucks, even though their actual tournament performance as a conference outpaces just about everybody. It's, co it's coordinated. It's deliberate. And Steve Forbes is right. The numbers are junk most of the time. Take that, nerds. What you got, what you got Smoke? Well, we'll end on a happy note in basketball. Anthony Edwards is one of the most fun players to watch in the NBA. And he was also one of the most highly touted prospects in high school. Well, apparently recently, Jason Williams was on the OG podcast hosted by Udonis Haslam, and he talked about his unique coaching experience with the former number one overall pick. <laughs> so tell us, you said you have a good Ant-Man story. Tell us it. So I was coaching a uh, a uh, high school uh, uh, high school all-star game in Atlanta when he was still in high school his senior year. And I don't know none of these kids, man. These young kids, I don't know. I'm just coaching, like, just just to be there. But I know what time it is with me now. Just show up. That's all we want you to do. So I'm there coaching. And Ant's on my team. Jump ball. Ant's on the bench. I don't know who Ant is, but jump ball. As soon as the other team get the possession, I swear anybody didn't take two dribbles, I get a tap on my shoulder. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's the director of the whole whole turn. Uh -huh. Why ain't number two in the game? I'm like, I don't know. Is he supposed to be? Yeah. Uh, he's the number one player in the country. But time out. <laughs> time out. Hey, Ant, go in. Who you want me to get, coach? Whoever you want, bro. Go on in. He ain't come out the rest of the game. You <laughs> figured out how to coach, did Yes, you? sir. <laughs> I miss Jason. You know what the funny thing is? You had a Jason Williams. You had this Jason Williams cut. As we were talking about dual sport, at, dual sport athletes a little while ago, somebody said, KB, hey, Jason Williams said he was the best quarterback that Randy Moss ever had in high school. And that's true. Man, I, I wish we could have gone to DuPont High School back in the day and watched oh. those two. Oh. Rand, West Virginia. We'll come back. We'll talk to Luke DeCock, Raleigh News and Observer. Maybe he will join me in uh, going after college basketball's nerds. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Coming up Friday morning on the Mac and Bone Show is the national media narrative about the ACC BS. We'll talk about it. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Radio 92.7 WFNZ, where for at least temporarily we are anti-nerd on this show. The college basketball nerds uh, once again leading a coordinated attack against our dear Atlantic Coast Conference, and uh, I'm here for a fight. So the perception, nay, the reputation of the ACC is at stake here. Let's discuss it with a man from the Triangle who knows a thing or two about the Atlantic Coast Conference, Luke DeCock, Raleigh News and Observer. He's back with us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. Luke DeCock, how you been, man? I'm good. I'm good. Good to be back. Good to be back from Syracuse, most of all. Mm. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, do you listen? Um, I, I like nerds most of the time, and I'm joking about the nerd thing. But like, I, I I don't like the way the Atlantic Coast Conference is treated, and the way these narratives are framed. And I listened to Steve Forbes go off about the the metrics and the net ratings, and uh, I heard John Shire pumping up Wake a couple of nights ago. I, I tend to agree with these guys. What What do you make of this? Is Is this all just crying and complaining to you i i think there are certain cases where the metrics probably don't adequately reflect reflect the strength of a team i think wake forest is one of those cases because their roster has changed over the course of the season they've gotten better um but the reality is like the human brain is not capable of calculating the relative strengths of 300 and something basketball teams uh, playing 30-something games. I mean, metrics exist for a reason, and one of the reasons they exist is to sort through data that no human can can do. And and, and the reality is, like, Ken Palm, for how much people hate it and complain about it, is a scientific correlated measurement of a pr- team's predictive strength. And it works well enough that Vegas uses it and various proxies to set betting lines. So, Obviously, the people who actually have skin in the game take it pretty seriously, and nobody takes it more seriously than the people who set odds lines. So, yeah, on the one hand, like, you kind of are what your record says you are. Like, we have metrics that measure how good we think you are, like Ken Palm or BPI, and we have metrics that measure how good you've done, how good your wins are, how bad your losses are, like wins above bubble and strength of record. Like, we know these things. Like, th- these formulas exist. We're we're out here trying to figure out what the strength of gravity is when we already know. Um, the problem is, if those metrics don't favor you or they you don't like the way they assess your team, um, you know, then you've got to create other narratives. And, and look, there are times where you can say, hey, the eye test. Um, nobody can watch every college basketball team in the country and adequately assess their strength um, with, with a pen and paper or in their head um, you, the eye test, we're just talking about subconscious and sometimes conscious biases. So for all that, all that said, is Wake Forest better than their metrics? I think probably in Wake Forest metrics, whether it's the, and, and I don't like the net, that's a whole nother conversation. I hate quadrants. That's a whole nother conversation. But when we're talking about the, the real metrics, the ones that are actually statistically sound, 
Um, Wake Forest have gotten better as they've won games, and that's what you can do is if you go and win games, those things tend to get better to reflect the perceived increase in your strength. So all of that is fine. The reality is, yes, there is a nationwide narrative attacking the ACC for reasons I don't quite understand. It may just be that the ACC has been on top for so long that everybody's kind of taken their shots at it. It may be as simply as the ACC, which is going to get five teams into the NCAA tournament, despite what Joe Lenardi says, and maybe six. The ACC is typically used to getting eight or nine bids. So there is probably an overreaction to a, a real lack of strength that comes off as saying, oh, the ACC is only going to get two teams in or the ACC is down. ACC is down from its great greatest days from 2019. Tough to have 15 teams all be good at the same time. It's going to be really tough to have 18 teams all be good at the same time. But the ACC is, C is still a 5-6 bid league, and there are teams like Wake Forest um, that are going to be really hard to beat down the stretch. So that's a very long answer to your question. So, I, But I do think the metrics – reflect some of this and some of this is sort of a, a created narrative no long answer but a good answer I, I appreciate that now you were covering Syracuse and Carolina as you mentioned there a second ago Syracuse lost by 36 in Chapel Hill then they turn around and, and knock off number seven Carolina on the road I, I the, the stat that I saw and I knew it was somewhere in this neighborhood but at the time um, I don't know what it is now. I think it's the same, but top 10 teams on the road this year in college basketball, 33 and 34. So in some ways, this is kind of college basketball in 2024. At the same time, though, if you're following along with Carolina and you know what their aspirations are and you think the roster is maybe better than it was during last year's failure, is it fair to expect that they don't take a loss like that? Or is that just college basketball? You know, I, I think we look at this game differently because it was their third loss in five games. People forget that that Duke one was in there. But if you, if you look at the Syracuse game in isolation, two things happen. One, North Carolina wasn't as good defensively as it has been at other points this season. There's no question about that. And they did change some things in terms of how they defended Syracuse's guards in the second half. It didn't work. But, um, you know, certainly there was a little more room for improvement there on defense. But offensively, it was one of their top ten performances of the season in terms of, of shooting percentage and efficiency. Defensively, it was the best shooting performance against North Carolina in nine years. And only some of that can be accounted to bad defense. Sometimes, as Roy Williams would say, everything looks better when the ball goes in the basket. And this is you now you're on the other side of it. So, look, Syracuse's go-ahead shot was a banked-in 40-foot three-pointer with a guy who had three seconds left on the shot clock and thought he was out of time. Like, J.J. Starling throws up a prayer. It goes in. UNC never leads again. It, when things like that happen, sometimes you just got to tip your cap. Now, the problem for UNC is, Third loss in five games. Defensive performance has been declining. There's no question about that. Um, that's a, a worrying trend. But the Tar Heels also benefited from some really bad three-point shooting by their opponents in the first part of the season. That's not something you can really defend no matter how much coaches talk about it. Three-point shooting is kind of its own deal. Um, it tends to regress to the mean. And I think that's what you've seen over the last couple of weeks is Teams shot really poorly against UNC from three-point range. Now they're shooting really well. Is it because UNC is playing worse defense? There's a little of that there. Is it because over the course of a 30-game season, that stuff tends to even out? No question there's a lot of that going on. So, as I said, if this wasn't the third loss in five games, I think you kind of just tip your cap and move on because it did look similar to the Georgia Tech loss and it did look similar to the Clemson loss and it looked similar to the near miss at Miami where they almost choked the game away at the end. And their late-game execution against Syracuse was terrible when they were still in it 
you know, it's a two-possession game with two minutes to go, and UNC turns it over four times. Uh, so, you know, when you look at it in terms of some of those trends, then, yes, it is sort of worrying. And, you know, I wouldn't say that it's, it's necessarily a turning point or any of that, but I do think there's a bit of a crossroads here for the Tar Heels. Their season's going to go one of two ways from here. They can continue down the path they've been on for the last two weeks, which, despite the win over Duke, is certainly not great. Or they can get back to where they were and pick it up and, and, and roll through fe- the rest of February and into March. So I don't think it's a crisis or a time to panic, but I do think that they're kind of, um, you know, two roads are diverging here, and they got to figure out which one they want to be on. Luke DeCock, Raleigh News and Observer, longtime sports columnist. He's with us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. Uh, Duke hasn't played since Monday, I guess. Uh, they beat Wake 77-69. They've won three straight since beating, pardon me, losing to Carolina. Uh, they've beaten Notre Dame, BC, and Wake. Are we seeing development and improvement from Duke right now, or are they simply more talented than the three teams they've beaten since losing to Carolina? I mean, they're more talented than the first two. I think the, the Wake win was a good performance, and I think they needed those other two wins to be in the position mentally and physically to play that well against Wake, in part because, you know, they got found out a little bit against North Carolina. I mean, John Shire was really unhappy with their effort, um, you know, not going for loose balls, not hustling on defense, things that, you know, at a program like Duke, you kind of take for granted sometimes. And so I think it was important over the next two games going into the Wake game that Duke show that that message had gotten through. You know, in the old days, they would have, you know, put all the clothes, all the Nike gear in the hallway or locked them out of the locker room or, you know, made them practice at midnight. You know, it's, it's 2024. The coaches don't do that stuff anymore. But John Shire has ways of getting his message through. And I think what you've seen over the last three games, those two, and then a good win against a good Wake team. I mean, John Shire is not BSing that. That's a good team. And they're a much better team than they were two months ago. Um, but Duke needed to show some improvement to play as well as they did against Wake. And I think that was a, a positive sign, a positive trend for Duke. I don't think you can say that, oh, they figured it out or they've turned a corner. It's still a team that's got some flaws and needs to show, show some more toughness at times. Certainly it didn't against UNC or the, the home loss to Pitt. But, um, you know, in terms of the response you want to see from Duke coming out of the loss to UNC, those three games certainly fit the bill. Uh, how much goodwill did, did Jim Phillips buy by keeping this tournament in North Carolina for five straight years? And how excited are you to come to Charlotte for three of them? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, look, I'm, I'm not going to complain about that. Uh, uh, it, it's great for the state. Um, the tournament's always better when it's here, whether it's Greensboro or Charlotte. So that's that's great. I, You know, I would have liked, I think it's time the ACC tournament branches out a little bit. I would have liked to have gone maybe to Pittsburgh for one of these or Boston or Tampa or back to Atlanta. Um, you know, I think, I think that that would, the tournament would benefit a little bit from some of those changes of sceneries. I love that. We're not going back to Brooklyn, um, where it's a nice arena and I know the big East people love it and Brooklyn's great, but it's just, nobody knows the tournament's going on there and it just feels so, uh, inadequate, um, when it's up there. So yeah, it's fine. I, I think it's a little bit of a missed opportunity. And obviously I'm really angry and frustrated that the tournament in 2028 is not going to be in Greensboro or Raleigh because I've been saying for five years that for the 75th ACC tournament, they ought to play the Tuesday games at Reynolds. And I had, you know, I wrote that. I lobbied for that. I've had positive conversations with people at the ACC. And, you know, they just took another good idea and flushed it down the drain. So <laughs> that, that part's frustrating. Man. I think that would have been awesome. I really do. I think that would have been a great event for the ACC to show how the tournament got started and why it means something and why it means more than other conference tournaments 
But instead, they were just like, oh, well, it was 75th anniversary. We'll celebrate it in Charlotte, which that's fine. I mean, it's still in the state and the office is there now and all that. But I just think that's a a tremendous missed opportunity. Yeah, but but I I got a quick question for you. Like, I I got a couple of of Connecticut trans. We got a lot of Connecticut transplants in Charlotte. But like UConn Adam just said, nothing screams ACC quite like Boston. It'd be a snooze fest there. I'm from New England. No one cares about the ACC. As as an adopted New Englander myself, my wife is. How could it work in Boston? Why Boston? I mean, it's a great city. People like to go there. It's not a city that that hosts conference tournaments. And when the NCAA tournament is there, and I've covered it there, it does really well, and people do care. Um, I think that would be an interesting place for the ACC to go. I think it's the kind of thing you try once and see how it goes. Um, Pittsburgh would be amazing because I've covered the NCAA tournament in Pittsburgh, and as my friend Craig Meyer, who used to cover the Panthers, like to say, the Pittsburgh Panthers, like to say, not only are there a bunch of hotels around the arena, it's one of the great cities in America to get drunk for 20 bucks, um, which is one of the things you look for in a conference tournament. Um, you know, Boston, the area around the arena now on Causeway and all of that, uh, that's an area like the area around the arena in D.C. where people can gather. And, you know, that's one of the things that Brooklyn lacks is a place for fans to sort of collide and mingle. And, and that's a big part of what the ACC tournament once was and still should be. I think Boston has that. Pittsburgh would, would have that. Um, Brooklyn doesn't. You know, Greensboro actually does it to a degree. Charlotte does, certainly. So, um, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses wherever you go. It's great having it here. It's, you know, it's what we're getting for our $50 million in tax money. So you and I, we chipped in, <laughs> uh, but we all did. But, uh, you know, I think there was certainly a missed opportunity to go to Reynolds and, and maybe to, to branch out a little bit in this cycle. But um, as I said, I'm not going to complain about staying in state for five years. It, it'll get a little repetitive as it did when the tournament was in Greensboro four or five years a little while ago, but uh, it'll be fine. Thank you, Luke. You're the best brother. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Hey. Um, yeah, I, I go to, I go to new England a lot now. I uh, got to be honest with you. I wore my VT hoodie out in New England once, and somebody said, it's a really nice festive Vermont shirt you have on there. <laughs> Go Catamounts. Or, hang on, I yeah, can't. You know the number of times I've walked around, like, Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, Wolfboro, New Hampshire, downtown Boston, wearing, like, a, a Virginia Tech, a VT shirt or hoodie, and I'm wondering how many people around me think I'm just rocking Vermont gear because they don't know what I'm wearing? Do you think... Because they don't care about college sports up there. I was going to say, do you think Luke's just wants it in Boston just so he has an excuse to come on the air and say, yeah, I'm laughing to God. And like that, I, I don't know. Okay, okay. What's more out of place, having the tournament in Pittsburgh or Boston or having it in Tampa? I'm trying to Because th- <sighs> remember, it was in Tampa for one year. That was the year UNC beat uh, NC State in the finals, and Sidney Lowe was where the, the debut of Sidney Lowe's infamous jacket. I know. I, it like even Pittsburgh's too weird. Yeah, like that might be the weirdest one of them all. At least Boston. I don't know, man. <laughs> Pittsburgh is too Big East for me. I mean, they're both Big East, but like Pittsburgh is more Big East. Sure. I just don't think there's any appetite for an ACC tournament in those places. No. I've been to Boston a lot. I don't think anybody cares at all. And Tampa's just New York South now. So, I don't know. Let's go to smoke on the headlines. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. 
the McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Who is smoke? Where is smoke? <laughs> Where there's smoke, there's fire. Let's go. All right, Kyle, this report is sponsored by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation has been at the forefront of inflammatory bowel disease research and care for over 50 years. Learn more about research, education, and support at Crohn'sColitisFoundation.org. History is in the making tonight, potentially, Kyle, as Michigan and Iowa are playing in women's basketball, and Caitlin Clark only needs eight points tonight to break the all-time women's scoring record in college basketball history, which is currently held by Kelsey Plum, who's one of the biggest WNBA stars going today, Kyle. Unfortunately for a lot of people, uh, the game's going to be on Peacock if you want to watch history be made. Or you can maybe, I don't know if you can get to Iowa this quickly, but if you can get tickets, it's 285 on Ticketmaster. Tickets are 251 on StubHub. Vivid Seats has them at 237. SeatGeek. No, 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 nobody's going to yeah. Iowa. Nobody's going to Des Moines tonight. Come on. But you, you're going to maybe try to maybe see if history gets made tonight? I'll catch the highlights. Okay. I mean, I, I'm excited, but I mean, I'll, I'll catch the highlights. You Which don't got? have Peacock, do, do you? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. I think possibly. I don't think I pay for it, though. What else you got? Well, I bet a lot of people will be paying to see the footage of this because apparently last night uh, a fight happened in the NBA, but it was in the locker room area as Isaiah Stewart, Beef Stew, and Drew Eubanks got into it, so much so that Isaiah Stewart got arrested. Uh, Kyle... They punched him before the game. Yeah, before the game, and he got arrested. Of course, I wonder how much an intern inside the Footprint Center is probably going to leak out that video to TMZ. Wait, we haven't seen it yet? No. Oh, I want to see it. Exactly. Plus, Beef Stew isn't a guy you want to mess with. Oh, I want to see it. All right, we'll come back. We'll tell you who balled out. We are 20 minutes away from Doug Rice ahead of Daytona on Sunday. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Join the Mac and Bone Show on Friday. Daytona's here. We have full previews and more on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Boogity, boogity, boogity. 22 ticks on the clock. Below, good protection, throws in the end zone. Touchdown! Ricky Prohl! It's going to be a drag race.
performers, big time achievers. We call it Who Balled Out. It's powered by High Performance Real Estate Advisors and the biggest baller of them all, Thomas Elrod. Go to highperformancerealestate.com and they'll see you at the closing table. Smoke what you got. I tell you what, man. <laughs> Trey Mann, he can hoop. 21 points, eight rebounds, six assists. As the Hornets won 122.99, man. Oh, Lord. Brandon Miller, Hornets rookie. Uh, Game-high 26 points last night as the Hornets won their third straight since the trade deadline deals were made. And Brandon Miller finished with 26 on 8 of 19 shooting, 4 of 9 from deep. He was a perfect 6 of 6 from the charity stripe as well. Uh, The Hornets beat the Hawks last night, 122-99. Worth mentioning, by the way. Noah Kongwu or Capella for the Hawks in that one last night. So I want to mention that. But, hey, it's the NBA. Nobody cares. I know this happens every (laughs) single night in the NBA. And most importantly here, after what we've seen, I don't care what anybody else's injury situation looks like at all. Honestly, I don't care ever again. I really don't either. I don't either. And uh, speaking of Brandon Miller, by the way, uh, here he was after the game on what the new guys on the roster have brought most to this operation. You know, with all the guys we brought in, uh, I think it definitely opens up the floor because, you know, they, they, they all can shoot. Um, so I think that just I think that just brings another a defender to, you know, close out to them and just, you know, moving without the basketball. I think that's uh, important to us, you know, just to spread everybody out. So, um, you know, just attacking gaps is kind of um, what we're doing for now. There you go. Better spacing. Guys are, you know, moving the basketball, not standing around, not looking to jack shots from the logo. You know, so a lot of what we've seen at times. And Hornets Ron just said, worth mentioning, no LaMelo or Mark Williams for the Hornets. No, I know. I know. Um, that's why I said nobody cares about that. But you're right. No LaMelo, no Mark Williams. But we haven't seen Mark Williams in two months. Mid to late December. I think his last game was December 12th, if I'm remembering off the top of my dome. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, yeah, they didn't play last night. But the guys who did were fantastic. Steve Clifford, I said this earlier, he he looks like your your 40-year-old buddy that just got out of a terrible marriage and looks like he's got a new lease on life. He looks like he just got out of a toxic marriage and he, he turned back time 10 years. Right? <laughs> um, you know, he's got pros in the locker room. And it's not that he had zero before. It's just that he's got a lot more now. These guys know how to conduct themselves. They know what's expected of them. He doesn't have to tell them the same things three times. And quite frankly, these guys, a lot of these guys are just doing what's asked of them. Where some of the previous guys either wouldn't or weren't capable. But you can see it. In three games since the deadline, they're second in the NBA in defensive rating. NKB, three game sample size. Got it. But they've only played three. That's all we've got. They've just been markedly better defensively. You know, on top of that, 27 assists on 44 made buckets last night. The ball's not sticking. Guys are looking for open shooters. These role players know what their roles are. So it, it's just been fun to see. And, you know, I understand that oftentimes we get caught up in the big picture of sports, right? It's all about, hey, titles, playoff appearances, contending for the conference, the division, hanging hardware. And, and it's not that, right? And you might feel like you're celebrating a, a glimmer of a silver lining in the middle of an ocean of futility. And I guess technically that's what this has been. They're still... What, 13 and 41, I believe is the record? Yeah, 13 and 41. Not going to lose 70 games this year, though. But they're a different team now. They've won three straight. They've got some guys on the roster who are from here and clearly care. They got veteran guys who know how to be pros. Uh, they might have discovered a diamond in the rough, so to speak, in Trey Mann. Like, Trey Mann was highly regarded coming out of college, but it felt like OKC had kind of given up on him. They couldn't find the minutes for him. He was just kind of withering away on the bench. 
And the Hornets said, we'll take him and Misich and Bertans. Give them all give them all to us, please. And it's working out. So we'll see what happens post-deadline. Wolfpack James told me, by the way, earlier in the show, he's not buying it. He's not moved by it. He will continue to be the stick in the mud because he's not big on Grant Williams. He doesn't think any of this is exciting enough yet. Um, I hope Wolfpack James is listening so he can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. But I mean, what, what are they smoking? Am I allowed to entertain the possibility? Stay, stay with me. Am I allowed to? Should I be even entertaining the possibility that in the span of a couple of days, the Hornets have gone from like 13 back of the final play-in spot to 10? I'm sorry, 9? 10? 10. They're 10 and a half right now. That's what it is. Yeah, 10 and a half. Am I, am I allowed to talk no, about it? No. No? No. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get back up around St. Paddy's Day. We'll have this conversation on St. Paddy's Day. Okay. Just didn't know. I just like I want to watch good basketball. I'm a basketball fan. Let's just worry about that right now. I know, I know, I know. But I'm saying you're right. Backing away from that, I am simply a basketball fan that wants this guy, wants this guy, wants this team to get it together, look consistently professional, contend and compete. We just watched a 43 win team here two years ago. It hasn't been that long ago, right? Let's do it again. And it feels like they made a lot of changes on Thursday that catapulted them far closer to that than just about anybody could have anticipated. Uh, side note, Doug Rice, president, anchor, Performance Racing Network, coming up in about eight, nine minutes. We'll talk about Daytona on Sunday. His victory lap, this will be his final year calling races for Performance Racing Network. And Doug's got some cool stuff on the horizon. And I don't think he's done as a broadcaster, you know, a- after he retires from NASCAR, by the way. So I, there's a lot of good stuff to get to. And I also see your text. The Panthers have officially announced their coaching staff on Twitter. We're going to come back to this. What? what what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm actually going to have to root for uh, one of Carroll's offsprings. Who? Nate oh, Carroll. Oh, Pete Carroll's offspring? Yeah. Is it is this some blood feud that I'm not aware of that you have with I mean I know we I know Panthers fans don't love the Seahawks, but do you have some kind of blood feud with Carroll? Well, for Pete Carroll, yeah. Cuz it's been, it's, played, been, it's been 9/11 truth or stuff, isn't it? No, no. It's it's <laughs> Good Lord. No, it, it's involved him playing for two or coaching two teams that I have never liked. And he's also comes across as a, you know what for me. Oh, remember you, you always get mad at me for mentioning the Bush push. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, you settle down over there. I'm going to take corn cob Craig's phone call. If, if a man calls to Charlotte from Nebraska, I at least ought to take his phone call. Craig, what's going on? Well, hey, thank you for squeezing me in. Yes, sir. Hey, I just I just had a uh, three quick things, and with all due respect to JJ Jensen, you don't you don't need any analytics to know that you defend uh, first on in overtime. I mean, if you end up fourth and seven, you t- you take the ball, you end up fourth and seven, you're likely to kick the field goal. Give the ball to the other team, they end up fourth and one. The analytics analytics will tell you big time they're going to probably have four downs to get the first down. So, and I, I just hope uh, John Lynch holds the head coach out there in San Francisco to the same evaluation standards that the head coach holds his assistants to because Shanahan had, had plenty of snafus in that ball game. And then, hey, on Cam and the fumble, and obviously Cam's not looking for any alibis or excuses, um, so I, 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 but I, I would just suggest this. Uh, up here in Lincoln, we had uh, uh, Jeff Sims, the, the quarterback, had fumble issues, and he never went on, uh, and fell on the football, you know, on, on uh, in the backfield. 
And we got a longtime coach up here, Ron Brown. He coached with Osborne and Solich, Polini, Frost, and Rules got him back on staff here. He 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 said something that r- really rings true in 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 coaching is is you get what you practice, and uh, starting quarterbacks in practice they tell them not to dive on the ball, just just so they don't get injured. So there's that little bit of hesitancy that a quarterback may have to dive on the ball might be might be simply based on what they've practiced for. You know, most of their life. I hear you. So, Thank you, Craig. I yeah. appreciate you, buddy. Hey, Be good out there in hey, Nebraska. What's up? What's up? Well, real quick. You know, he's not it, the two sport athlete thing. He's not an elite player, but he's uh, draft. Yeah. Uh, Nebraska has a nose guard up here uh, who dropped from three thirty down to two eighty five, so he can do some wrestling. Oh, okay. He's a, he's, what's his yeah, name? He's a four time. What's his undefeated name? Undefeated champion. What's his name? Uh, Nash Hutmaker. I'll look him up. Thank you, Craig. I got to run, man. Hour number three next. Doug Rice, Performance Racing Network, president, anchor. He's retiring after this year, but for the first time in his career, he'll be on the call for at least a portion of the Daytona 500 on Sunday. We'll let him explain next. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ.